Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 192 of the Prancing Pony podcast, where tonight we're pleased to be sharing our platform with some of our listeners to talk about a very important topic. And we will head over to the common room in just a moment. But first, folks, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West, Alan Sisto. Thank you, Sean. Now, before we bring in our guests tonight, we want to talk a little bit about how this episode came to be. You've likely heard us talk about the fellowship of the podcast. I mean, let's face it, we mention our Patreon community every episode. Well, and for good reason. Those folks help support our show. Members get exclusive content like five to ten minute postscripts on our chapter-based episodes and quarterly full-length episodes on special topics chosen by one of our patrons. Now, the list of names that we include at the end of every episode, those folks at the Kirdan's contribution tier, well, choosing the topic of those quarterly specials is one of their perks. And in summer of 2018, we heard from one of them who wanted us to tackle a really serious topic. Yeah, she said she'd been, and I'm going to quote here, reading an article in a major American newspaper about a man who was one of the founders and editors of a white nationalist website. There was a list of books which they encouraged their followers to read, which support their point of view of white superiority, and on the list was The Lord of the Rings. Mm. Well, our patron asked us to research this and address the topics of racist movements using Tolkien's work to justify their stance and, and the broader question of racist content in Tolkien's work. Now, ordinarily, only our patrons get to hear these special episodes. But as we researched and recorded this special, we realized the topic was too important to limit it to the less than 200 patrons that we had at the time. So we asked them if they would allow us to release it to the main feed. The answer was unanimous. And two years ago, in February of 2019, we released the special to our main feed as episode 114. Yeah, and it was pretty well received by many listeners. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think I speak for both of us when I say we're pretty proud of the work that we did on it. Yeah, yeah. But, but we did get some valid criticisms of it as well. And one of those valid criticisms was that the way we tackled it by looking at Tolkien's intentions was really only part of the answer. It's not only a question of intent, but also of impact. And so there's another question entirely that needed to be discussed, which is how Tolkien's words come across to readers today, regardless of whether he himself was racist. That's right. Now, that means finding out how readers who have experienced racism react to the work and gaining a better understanding of the aspects of Tolkien's work that have been perceived as more problematic or even hurtful to certain groups approaching the work. And admittedly, that was part of the conversation that Sean and I, as two middle-aged white guys, didn't have any frame of reference to talk about in a meaningful way. Yeah, but we knew, even then, that when the time was right, we would want to revisit the issue and actually bring yeah. some folks on the show who could discuss Tolkien's works from their own perspective and give us some of that insight that we don't have. That's right. And then last June, the subject came to the forefront again. But this time, it was also about how the Tolkien fandom was dealing with race in Tolkien and in the fandom itself after an incident from Tolkien 2019 had come to light. Now, combine that with the growing understanding among so many of us, especially here in America, about racial matters in general, and we knew it was time to come back to this subject. Yeah. And so what we did was we put out an open invitation on all of our social media channels for people of color anyone who was willing to come on our show and talk about race in Tolkien and in the Tolkien fandom. Now, it took us some time to line everything up in our production schedule, but we're happy to say that today's the day. Mm -hmm. We're going to be joined today by three guests, each of whom having the opportunity to discuss this from their perspective, share their thoughts, their feelings, and their unique experiences. Now, creating this episode was a learning experience for us, and we are grateful to each of our guests for helping us, and hopefully each of you, to understand this subject from perspectives other than our own. 
But before we begin, we need to make some things clear. The opinions shared by our guests are their own. Yeah, our goal going into this episode, and this was something that we were both very conscious of, was mm-hmm. we wanted to keep our own mouths shut as much as possible for a change. <laughs> Which is rare. Yeah, it is rare. But for this episode, we're here to listen, not to challenge. Right. And while, like all of our shows, this one was recorded ahead of time and it was edited for sound quality and nervous coughs and things like that. Sure. But we're not editing to change the substance in any way. And we have not attempted to steer the conversation in any way besides the questions you'll hear us ask. Well, right. And of course, we didn't want to steer the conversation because our goal, unlike our previous episode on the topic, is not to find our own interpretation here, but to listen for other voices. Our purpose today is to provide a platform to encourage conversation and to learn. And we hope you'll appreciate it. And we hope you'll be inspired to engage in the conversation yourself in a constructive way Mm -hmm. in our amazing listener community spanning all of our social media spaces. At our Common Room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony Podcast on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have some really good discussions going on over on Reddit, too. You can find us there at r slash prancingponypod. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both with the handle at prancingponypod. And if you want exclusive content, postscripts, full bonus episodes, or even live Discord events, then check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod, where you can support the show by joining the Fellowship of the Podcast. Folks, please join us in welcoming our first guest this evening. My name is Amy Koenig. I am currently living in Germany. I am a classicist at the moment. I'm on a postdoctoral fellowship in Munich. Um, and so I'm working at the Bavarian Academy of Sciences. Oh, wow. All right. Wow. That's great. And what do your loved ones think of all your Tolkien fandom? Um, they are very <laughs> understanding. I mean, my, in a way, my, my whole family are kind of Tolkien fans and my, my parents were responsible for introducing me and my brother to Tolkien and my partner really loves Tolkien as well. Maybe not to quite the extent <laughs> that, that I do, but they're very, very happy to kind of talk about it with me and, you know, rewatch the movies mm-hmm. or talk about the books yeah. with me. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's great. Mm-hmm. It's always nice to have supportive people in our lives who, if not quite encourage, at least tolerate. There you go. Yeah, We understand that for sure. So you mentioned your parents being responsible for introducing you to Tolkien. When and how did you first discover Tolkien's work? About how old were you? Um, I honestly don't remember my first encounter with Tolkien. That's how young I was. Um, My parents read from The Hobbit to me when I was really little. Um, And then kind of as soon as I started learning to read. I started at least trying to read. Um, so The Hobbit first and then Lord of the Rings. We had these like really battered paperbacks with awful 80s cover art on them that were, we read to pieces. Did Aragorn have a feather and it was Return of the King a red? They kind of look like D&D cosplay. A little bit. Was it the one where Bilbo kind of looks a little bit like Benny Hill with dark hair? Yeah, that's okay. the one. We had those. And uh, Legolas kind of looks like Fabio. I, I had Yes, he does. Okay. Yep. That was my first copy too. Those are great. We're all of a certain age, it would seem, or, or close to it. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to denigrate you quite like that, Amy. So, <laughs> well, I, th- I think there were th- they were their kind of inheritance from my parents. So. Yeah, that's but, what I figured. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, and then the movies came out when I was a teenager. Um, okay. And I so I was I was a fan of those as well, but I was definitely a books first. Um, and I think we also had a cassette tape of the the BBC radio production, the one from the eighties. Mm, okay. 
So you read the books first and then you saw the movies. What, um, what kind of impact do you think that process had? The fact that you were able to read the books before seeing a visual interpretation of them. What kind of impact did that have on how you view race in Middle Earth? Hmm. Yeah. So I think, I mean, not only that I read the books first, but also I was so young. I mean, yeah. a lot of aspects of the books kind of went over my head initially, to be honest. And and one of the things mm-hmm. I think that I, I didn't necessarily pick up on immediately was some of the racial implications. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this wasn't the only set of books I read as a kid that had kind of some dated language in it. Mm-hmm. And it certainly wasn't one of the book series that sort of did this most obviously like uh, C.S. Lewis comes to mind. Um, Mm, I, you mm -hmm. know, I read a little princess in the secret garden and all of those, um, Mm. you know, had, um, so in terms of my ethnic background, um, my mother is Sri Lankan and my father is white American. And so because like a little princess in the secret garden contain a lot of descriptions of India that are not great from a modern perspective, those sort of, obtruded themselves onto my notice, I think, before I started thinking about Tolkien in that way. I I think the movies did bring some of those issues more to the forefront of my mind, but it Mm -hmm. really took a while, you know, sort of as I started kind of turning to the posthumously published material and returning to the books over and over as I matured and as I started to think critically about my own background and my own views on race. Mm-hmm. So it took a while to kind of really start registering it and, and thinking about it critically. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because, I, I mean, here on the Prancing Pony podcast, we love a lot of Tolkien's archaic language, right? I mean, there's things in there like mm-hmm. read oft is found or midst of the eot is all that the stuff that we <laughs> we tend stuff, to love. Right. We'd love to point it out when he when he uses this language. But yeah. But then at other times there's other language in there that's a bit old fashioned that is sometimes viewed as racially coded. And that's things like the squinting eyes of the orcs or their swart skin. Mm-hmm. And as you just kind of mentioned, you know, the, the Peter Jackson films, they've also been criticized as being racially coded in their depiction of yeah. orcs and Easterlings and Herodrim and so forth. Tell us a little bit about what you've noticed in the works, books and or movies, and, and what's your reaction to it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's something that I absolutely have noticed, um, and partly because, I, I mean, I love archaic language, too, um, in, in general. And so I, I, you know, and, and partly thanks to my profession, I pay close attention to language. And I mean, I, I, I think it is really important to notice the racially coded language and and to think about it for what it is. I kind of wanted to, as a sidebar, um, emphasize from the start that I kind of think that a lot of the more facile debates on race in Tolkien focus, I think, far too much on skin color um, and that mm-hmm. and physical mm-hmm. appearance in general. And that really does tend to not necessarily do the topic justice because it is a more modern way of thinking about race than the types of the source material he's drawing on. Mm. You know, this the usual sort of like somebody says, well, a lot of dark skinned people are evil in Tolkien. And somebody else says, you know, well, the, the men of loss are not her brown skinned and they're on the side of good. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Easterling skin color is not mentioned in the third age. So your argument is invalid. And I mean, I think there's some truth and some falsity to what each of those people is saying, but it doesn't really get at the root of the issue on either side. Mm. I just wanted to mention that because as a scholar of the ancient world, I'm very familiar with ways that people have discussed racial difference or you know, revealed racial prejudices without skin mm. color being perceived as a primary axis of that 
facial difference. So like when Aristotle talks about Asiatic peoples being like naturally suited to servitude, for example, he doesn't talk about skin color as an aspect Mm. of that or reflecting that, but that it's still important to talk about as an example of of racial or ethnic prejudice, for example, Mm -hmm. in alongside the racially coded or you viewed as racially coded language, I think it's often as or more important to talk about, I guess what we'd now term cultural imperialism. Okay. Like about the way that at least in the published narrative, it sometimes seems like the peoples of the East and South have kind of fallen under this sway of Sauron worship. And again, this is how it appears in the text, not necessarily how it is, but with relative Mm -hmm. ease compared to the kind Mm. of individualistic resistance of the West and North, those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems equally important to talk about that, but that's not to say that the significance and the impact of the racially coded language should be minimized. You're just taking it from a different angle. You're you're mentioning that it's not just, you know, the the visual appearance of the character. It's the framework that the culture has been placed in and, and how that has an impact as well. Yeah. Okay. I imagine language is probably a part of that too, isn't mm. it? I mean, mm-hmm. the, yeah. I, I think back to my time studying the classics and it seems like in the ancient world, there was a lot of attention paid to, you know, the way those barbarians talk and things like mm. that on the part of the Greeks and Romans. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've just recorded some episodes on the Urukai and talking about the black speech. And mm-hmm. I mean, again, asking you as a classicist, what, what degree do you feel like language plays in sort of this this concept of cultural imperialism in Tolkien? Yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely it plays a key role. And that's also something that I see having a kind of as being a, a little bit of an inheritance of ancient ways of thinking about the world, because exactly mm-hmm. as you say, I mean, to the to the Greeks in particular, language plays a central role in defining the boundaries of culture. And so sort of Tolkien's sort of centralization of language as kind of embodying cultural difference does have some parallels that one can see there, I think. And yeah, I think that's that's part of a broader idea that that physical appearance is only sort of one of the things that one should be thinking about mm-hmm. in this context. And mm-hmm. I also wanted to say that a, a lot of the time, I think this sort of goes to thinking about not only kind of Tolkien's cultural context, but the context of the world he's creating. I mean, Tolkien is using a kind of what might be called a Western European set of aesthetics to code his worlds. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be taken as a kind of translation of the biases of the source material. That is the kind of in-universe yeah. narrators, who they are, what the limitations of their perspective are. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times I do take you know, what I see in the text, including the racially coded language, you know, if you, to, to call it that as a kind of as an expression of those attitudes rather than necessarily something Tolkien himself is subscribing to, hmm. you know, kind of Watsonian reading and not a doyleist reading, I guess, if that makes sense. Sort of the perspective of the character instead of mm-hmm. Tolkien himself, sort of the point of view character's reaction to a particular culture. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, kind of. So the idea that, that Tolkien, of Tolkien as translator, um, right, in a sense, right. and this is a way of, yeah, kind of translating a particular set of, of cultural biases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fits within the frame narrative, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but but, I, but I'd also say that, I mean, uh, that kind of understanding of what's going on isn't always apparent from the immediate context. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily a, mm. a shallow reading to still have problems with the language that's there. I'd say that one impression that I got reading the story growing up is that it never... It seemed to me that Tolkien wasn't really thinking of his hypothetical reader as anything other than white. Uh-huh. Um, and that's mm-hmm. not, that's fair. 
Yeah, that, you know, that, that's not like a, a capital crime or a, you know, a, a terrible thing. And that's not something that he was unique in. Um, but I think it, it's important to acknowledge that I, I don't really think he was thinking about how it might feel to be a black reader, you know, reading the description right. of the men of Farharad or, you know, or to be an Asian or a Middle Eastern reader who's reading about like slanting eyes and mm-hmm. sallow skin and scimitars. Mm-hmm. Right. There is an assumption that the reader, to some extent, shares the perspective of those things as other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, that's, you know, that's that's not a horrible thing, but it is something that I think can be legitimately pointed out um, and legitimately criticized. Like he obviously knew people of color and the UK was not all white and even Oxford wasn't all white at the time he was writing. Mm -hmm. No, certainly not. Yeah. And so from that perspective, I I think it is something that, you know, that, that merits discussion as from a modern perspective problematic. Um, But there are also all these other complicated things that are going on with it that, yeah you know, that I understand and, and, and think about and, and I think enrich my understanding of the work as a whole, honestly, to pay attention to it. I'm sure. Well, thank you for that. I think that's a, actually a really eye-opening answer to that question. And yeah. I think gives me as a reader and a podcast host some things to think about. Agreed. hundred percent. Now we here at the Prancing Pony podcast have always seen Tolkien's, you know, primary message of the legendarium is one of togetherness, people from different races and cultures, elves, men, dwarves, hobbits, ents joining together to fight a common enemy. Now, that's the angle that we approached it from in our last episode on race in Middle-earth. But, of course, we realize (laughs) we're middle-aged white guys. Sometimes we realize we're more than middle-aged, but (laughs) we'll leave that there. (laughs) We see the world through our own lens, and certainly other interpretations are out there. Some have argued that there's still quite a lot of othering going on in the story that outweighs that sense of togetherness. What's your take on that? I mean, I would I would agree that I get that sense of togetherness from the narrative. And that's I mean, that's part of the reason I love Tolkien so deeply. And in a way, part of the the reason that I'm so interested in discussing things like race in Tolkien or the, the othering in the narrative, it's precisely because his values and, you know, the message of the narrative seem to to go against or to be fighting against those sort of hmm. what might be taken as lingering you know, racially problematic um, or from a modern perspective, uncomfortable elements in the story. Um, you know, sure. in a way, Tolkien himself kind of taught me to be critical in this way. <laughs> and yeah. like the, I mean, the reason I care so much about it is because the message of, of love and compassion and togetherness is so powerful. Like the, the mm. most moving moments in the legendarium to me are those moments of compassion, like, you know, Galadriel and Gimli and Lorien yes. or Sam looking yeah. at the, the dead man of Harad or, mm-hmm. or Finrod and Andreth in the Athrobeth as well. Yes. With a different yes. kind of sort of interracial understanding. And it makes me wish that that could, could extend even further um, in some ways. Like one of the things that most enriched my understanding of Tolkien was, and really made me love him even more as a writer was looking through some of the unpublished material and seeing how much and how carefully he revised and went back and really, mm. s- in a lot of cases, struggled, I think, to explore the implications of his views and adjust his world accordingly. Like yeah. the way he goes back and forth on the origin of orcs, for example. Exactly what I was thinking of when you started mentioning that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, to, to thinking about race again, I mean, pieces like Tal Elmar where we get this sort of really tantalizing glimpse of Numenorians as colonizers through the eyes of the indigenous peoples. Yeah. So it seems like 
these are some you know questions that did kind of preoccupy him and that he did go back mm-hmm. and revisit and I wish more than anything that we had more of that regarding mm. race specifically. Um, like one one thing that I always kind of like to think about, again, from the perspective of Tolkien as translator of a historical source narrative, mm-hmm. is the idea that we could get perspectives from Harad like, included in the kind of later iterations of the Red Book of Westmarch, like whether mm. you know, yeah. turning up in the appendices or what have you. Because you could, I mean, yeah. I think you, you can imagine a future where, I mean, the, the, oh, yeah. in the fourth age, the kind of affecting of a piece of a reconcilement, you know, also leading to kind of cultural exchange and, you know, intellectual exchange, like Tolkien's not allegory, but in terms of historical inspiration, Western Europe and the Islamic world had really sustained Mm -hmm. fascinating intellectual interactions. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that may be really kind of as a sort of pipe dream, what if, imagine what would happen Mm. if, you know, if we had in the Red Book kind of historical source material from Harad talking about the War of the Ring as well. Yeah. So we don't just get that kind of, I mean, Sam's beautiful moment of compassion is beautiful, but it's, Mm -hmm. it is from the kind of perspective of the free peoples. We don't get, you know, we don't get an answer to the, the questions that he asks himself. No. Right. That's true. Yeah. It makes me wonder what would happen if we could. Well, that, that, that is a great what if, isn't it? I, I can't help but start imagining that in my mind. I, I, thanks for putting that idea in yeah. my head. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a fascinating thought. It would, and, and it would give us an opportunity to see a world or a Middle Earth post-Sauron, right? And, and, yeah, see, yeah. and see what happens. You know, do those divides start to disappear once Sauron right. is out of the picture? And I think that would, that would have actually been a, a beautiful thing to see. Mm. Yeah, precisely because, and, and I, I think, as you guys have mentioned before, that the idea that the sort of division between races is something that's sown and fomented by the enemy. I mean, that right. could be a really, mm-hmm. yeah, from that perspective, it could be a really wonderful sign. That, yeah, mm. that there is a kind of hope. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I like that. Well, I guess moving on to one of my other questions, which you've kind of hit on a little bit already in one mm-hmm. of your previous answers, but you've identified how there are just some elements of the text that are, they're just going to remain problematic really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess I'd I'd ask, Hmm. you know, you've obviously managed to look past that or at least accept it as something in the work and still appreciate the work despite it. Do you have any advice for our listeners on how to do that? Because I know that that's one thing I think people struggle with a lot in the community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult question because I think, you know, everyone has their own perspectives and their own capacities or you know, mm. strategies for dealing with this in a work. I would say, you know, for me really just to you know to notice it and not pass over it while remaining open minded about it. I found it really helped to, as I mentioned, to to kind of think about it in terms of Tolkien as translator and narrative focalization um, and, and, you know, thinking about it as the product of, of the in-universe narrator um, and seeing whether, you know, the story itself provides us grounds to see that as, as a limitation of, of the chronicler uh, rather than Tolkien himself. I think thinking about it that way, at least for me, made me more aware of the fascinatingly complex things he was doing as a writer yeah, I, I think it's important to think about, 
you know, paying attention to this kind of stuff, not necessarily as stemming from an oversimplified view of the work and not producing an oversimplified view of the work, but something that can actually enrich our understanding of it, not as, as a kind of tool to shut down appreciation of Tolkien or discussion of Tolkien, but as something that, that can be a rich part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. As well as, I mean, again, I think Tolkien himself kind of taught me how to read Tolkien to how how to you know love someone and bring compassion to my interactions with them while also having you know an understanding of imperfection and an acknowledgement of imperfection mm-hmm. that doesn't get mm-hmm. in the way of you know granting them the worth and dignity they deserve I, I mean I see that a lot in Tolkien's dialogues like the Athrobeth that I mentioned before with yeah, yeah, Andres. Yeah. You know, how, how Finrod approaches people actually kind of taught me a lot as a reader and an academic, and I would kind of apply that to Tolkien as well. Mm. To love Tolkien, but also remember that he's yeah. a fallible person living in a particular time who, yeah. I mean, like all of us, doesn't always, you know, fully... Hmm trying to find the right way to say this, but doesn't always find himself fully capable of Mm. perfectly living up to the values he enshrines. Mm. And that's, that's okay. Isn't that all of us, right? I mean, yeah, (laughs) that doesn't, that's all of us. You're right. Yeah, (laughs) that is absolutely all of us. Yeah. We have our standards, but we don't always meet them. And it's, uh, it is disappointing when we don't, to be sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Frodo fails and, and yeah. (laughs) yeah. And, and, and I I think that's, I mean, that's something that Tolkien himself, you know, both as an author and as a Catholic understood very deeply. Mm -hmm. And so that I think helps me, helps me think about it, that it's, it's something Mm. you can talk about and that you can acknowledge Mm. the impact and even in some cases, the hurt that, that it can bring to people without that resulting in, in, you know, demonizing Tolkien or his work. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's just a matter of accepting some imperfections and recognizing them, not accepting them and saying that they're okay, but accepting that they're there and that it's okay to recognize them as being there. And and recognizing Mm -hmm. them doesn't mean that you're, as you said, Amy, trying to demonize Tolkien or trying to negate the value of the work. Right. Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, somebody pointing out these instances doesn't necessarily mean that they don't love the work too. Um, And I think that's important to understand. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, what would you like to see future adaptations of Tolkien do differently? We've talked about, you know, adding some content. So I think that's probably where you're headed with this, but including maybe, but not necessarily the Amazon series. What do you want future adaptations to look like in that regard? Hmm. Yeah. So I would say something I'd really love to see um, deals not so much with, say, the race or ethnicity of the actors or the the, the characters, but um, deals with the kind of the way cultural difference is evoked in the sets and the costumes. I mean, I, I think what the, the the Jackson movies gave us amazing attention to detail in terms of differentiating cultures. Yes. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite aspects of the movies. Um, but I, th- I think I'd like to see future adaptations take that further and to convey, and again, I, I'm speaking as a scholar of the ancient world, kind of the sure. real kind of diversity, color, richness of the worlds that he was drawing on for his aesthetics, like the Mm -hmm. medieval world, the Byzantine world, the classical world. Um, Mm -hmm. We know that 
Greece and Rome weren't the kind of, you know, traditional idea of white marble statues and classical restraint. That's really a kind right. of retrojection onto the ancient world based on, you know, some later narratives that people wanted to promote. But if you actually look at it, I mean, for example, like archaic Greece, aesthetically speaking, looked a lot like the Near East and Egypt right. and owes a lot mm-hmm. to the Near East and Egypt. And like in the medieval world too, um, I was actually just, I visited the city of Augsburg in Germany and um, mm. I saw the clothes that a bishop from the 13th century was buried in. Um, and he had this beautiful vestment. Um, so th- this was like garb that he would actually have worn in mm-hmm. his clerical office, but mm-hmm. the, the, they were made of Persian cloth and they were embroidered with legends from the Shahnama. And wow. these were oh, wow. like, <laughs> these were the clerical robes that he had himself buried in. Wow. <laughs> so you have these like amazingly splendid legends of Kings. Um, it w- and it was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I'd really love to see a little bit of that sort of less reductive understanding of, of cultural mm-hmm. diversity mm. sort of in you know, what Tolkien really cared about the kind of the, the aesthetics of the, of the world that he inhabited. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that would be fascinating. And of course, Tolkien himself is evoking, you know, Egypt as a parallel for Gondor in terms yeah. of aesthetics. Right. And, right. Very much. Yeah, I I saw some discussion online of, and I might be getting this wrong, but that um, some Middle Eastern actors had been potentially cast as Numenorians for the Pine series. Um, I'm not sure how valid that information is. I believe so. Yeah, Um, Yeah, I'm not not sure either, but it it seems like it's a very diverse cast based on what we know so far. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw some speculation emerging from that, that, that they might be, you know, thinking about or depicting Numenor as a kind of Mediterranean culture in the fullest sense. Um, so mm-hmm. as potentially even a kind of Near Eastern influenced culture in terms of the aesthetics too. But I, I, I saw some people reacting to that with a little bit of disappointment, oh. saying things like they'd prefer a, a kind of Greco-Roman aesthetic to what they termed an Oriental one. Ooh. And mm. uh, and sort of drawing parallels to the Jackson movies as well. And I, I just, I, I wished I could like convey to them somehow that an aesthetic that seems oriental to them would actually be more accurate to what we mm-hmm. know and what Tolkien knew and what he right. drew in terms of his, you know, the, the sort of designs from Numenor that we, you know, we have a few examples, yeah. you know, right. that would kind of be more accurate to the Greco-Roman world than, than what they may be envisioning. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm reminded of that letter. One of his letters, I, I can't remember which one, Alan, do you remember mm-hmm. which one it was? Well, not described... off the top of my head, probably. But <laughs> <laughs> It's the one where he actually drew the diagram of the crown of Gondor. And he did talk very specifically about the sort of Egyptian influences on Precisely. Numenor. And I, I, I think there's, yeah, that again, I, I feel like Amy's really hitting on some aspects of cultural exchange in the ancient world that I, I think maybe people have not always been that aware of. But Tolkien certainly was, and and it seems like leaning into that a bit more would be would be true to what Tolkien knew of the ancient world. Yeah, I th- I think so, and I think I think it would it would in some ways do him justice in a way that mm-hmm. a, a kind mm-hmm. of more reductive depiction would not. By the way, the letter you're referring to is letter number two eleven. I knew you'd find it. Thank you, sir. He does provide the illustration. It was a letter to Rona Bear, and he specifically says that the Numenorians of Gondor were proud, peculiar, and archaic, and I think are best pictured in, say, Egyptian terms. 
And then he goes on, as we know, because we talked about this, of course, on the show, the, right, the whole right. idea of the, the tombs and the, the ancestry and all of that, all of that stuff. Yeah. So, but yeah, very much that visual of the crown with the wings, he compares that to the crowns of, of Egypt, the, the yeah. height of the crowns in particular. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, as we're, as we're starting to think about wrapping up here, we've talked a little bit about your experience of the work itself. Um, and you've kind of hit on this a little bit with your last answer. So thank you. Uh, it's almost like we planned that. <laughs> <laughs> but what's been your experience of Tolkien fandom? Have you felt welcomed by Tolkien fandom, uh, marginalized? Do you feel like your, uh, your opinions, which certainly seem extremely nuanced and, and well thought out to me, do you, how do you feel that's, that's been received in Tolkien discussion? Yeah, I would say overall, I've overwhelmingly felt welcomed. Um, and, okay. you know, I've, I've been a Tolkien fan all my life. Uh, and this is something that I've, I've really felt part of a, a community of, of Tolkien fans. And that's something that was really important to me growing up, you know, partly, you know, as somebody from a multiracial background, it was important to me to find, you know, places of belonging and, and the Tolkien fandom was one of those places. And part of that is certainly that message of tolerance, of cooperation, mm -hmm. of, you know, cultural interactions leading to good things. You know, I've I've evoked or I've referenced some discussions before that I've, you know, maybe wanted to interject a little bit more into or, you know, wanted to be a part of it. Overwhelmingly, the majority of interactions I've had have been really, really wonderful. And there are a lot of really amazing, compassionate, tolerant people in this fandom. Good. And it's one I'm proud to be a part of pleased to hear that. Well, what can we do here at the Prancing Pony podcast to make sure that voices like yours are heard and continue to be welcomed in the Tolkien community? I mean, I, I think a big part of it is, is precisely things like this, um, that okay. you're, you're reaching out you know, to hear the voices of people like me to kind of promote them and encourage them um, and to, to make sure that, you know, you're corner of the fandom is a welcoming place um, for those okay. perspectives. But yeah, I guess I guess overall, um, for Tolkien mm. fans in general, I would say, you know, practice what Tolkien preaches, mm. you know, listen, talk, understand, disagree, absolutely. But, you mm -hmm. know, come to come to interactions from that, that place of compassionate insight and understanding. Well, I, I can't think of a better message for Tolkien fans than that one, Amy. And I just want to Agreed. thank you so much for coming on the show and, yes. and, and sharing your insights with us. It's, uh, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. And mm -hmm. thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a real honor. <laughs> thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks again for coming. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and bring out our next guest? Hi, I'm Stephen Belsky. I'm really glad to be here. We are glad to have you. We're glad to have you. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us where you're from, what do you do? And while you're at it, why don't you tell us how you discovered Tolkien's work in the first place? So I grew up in and around New York City, um, but I've lived in Michigan for the last decade or so of my life. I'm a rabbi. I also work as a construction worker. Wow. Oh, wow. Cool. So when I was 
in third grade. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if it was for a birthday present or a Hanukkah present, um, but my parents got me and my brother. We're twins, so we have the same birthday, so it's easy for them. They got us the four book set of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow. Cool. We were very young, but we loved it. Um, and soon right. afterwards in the library, we discovered the Silmarillion and the Books of Lost Tales and eventually Unfinished Tales. It was really funny because we were so young that we didn't really understand a lot of what was going on. My brother <laughs> started reading the Silmarillion and I started reading Book of Lost Tales and we would literally argue oh, about the differences. Wow. Like, they're called the Solisimpi. No, they're called the Teleri. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. It would be many years until we uh, learned about the concept of comparing manuscripts of the same text. Yeah. So we mm -hmm. literally had no idea what was going on. But we, we loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. This was, this was in the early 90s, the early days of the internet. So the next step was... Both of us got involved with Tolkien discussions on Usenet. Oh, oh wow. Usenet. Wow, that yeah, is a Usenet. ways back. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Then, right before high school, I joined Elendormush. Okay. Yeah. If you remember the age of MUDs and MOOs and MUCs mm -hmm. and all the different acronyms. I remember that. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't into that one. That that probably was pretty cool, huh? It was. It was amazing. Like I was heavily involved with it for anyone who doesn't know. So Elendor is a uh, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings-themed, text-based, internet yeah. role-playing game. It's like Lotro from before the internet invented graphics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would be like Lotro if everything was made up of ASCII characters, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really basic graphics in the most yeah. simple ways. Yeah, and so I was I was really involved with that. That got me deeper into Tolkien and deeper into role playing games, which have mm -hmm. remained a uh, important part of my uh, life since then. Awesome. And that's that's basically it. That started to uh, to fade by the sort of the middle of the first decade of the two thousands. Mm -hmm. And then for a while, I wasn't didn't really have much Tolkien in my life until I discovered the Prancing Pony podcast. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. That's great. Yeah. So thank you for bringing me back into it. Well, we're glad you found us. That's, yeah. that's really cool. We're thrilled that you found us. We really are. I love that story. I remember all those things. I mean, I remember being on Usenet and, you know, bulletin boards on, I don't know, Sierra Online and America Online and all those things, you know, chatting away yeah, yeah. about Lord of the Rings and things. Well, and I remember getting emails from you shortly after you had just discovered the podcast. I remember you writing to Barlaman to... Uh, yeah. You know, to say hi and introduce yourself and say you discovered us. And that's really cool to think that that was right at the beginning of your reawakening. That's neat. That really is. So you said you discovered the books first and it was pretty early in your life, obviously well before the movies were out. I, I'm mm -hmm. curious, what kind of impact do you think that had? You know, experiencing Tolkien's words first. What kind of impact do you think that had on how you view the topic of race in Middle Earth? Uh, well, let me uh, let me start like this. Okay. Growing up as a minority. I was used to the majority of the media I consumed being other people's stories. Mm. So mm. when I watched TV or movies or read books, I remember I read Tolkien after reading Narnia and after reading Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising series. I guess it was sort of the British fantasy canon 
before uh Harry Potter started. Yeah. Fair enough, yeah. But it, it but it always it always felt like other people's stories. Yeah. Um it didn't really have much to do with me and I guess that's sort of the the way I approached it just fundamentally. And after all, the professor subcreated his world for like two primary reasons, right? One was mm-hmm. as a sandbox for his languages to play in. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I appreciate immensely because I also got into conlanging because of Tolkien. That's right. Yeah. And um, and the other reason was to be some kind of epic mythological prehistory for England. Right. To to like fill in the gaps in his national identity because he didn't have that kind of narrative. Right. So I read it as someone else's story. Like mm. I felt fortunate that my ancestors passed down to me a body of lore and law and traditional wisdom that goes all the way back to the bronze age. Mm-hmm. And so right. when I need to like figure out who I am or what I'm supposed to stand for, like I can refer to that and find out what my cultural values are, what my religious ideals are. And mm-hmm. not everyone has mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So, Tolkien didn't True. have that. Yeah. And so I can respect his need to create something that might try to fulfill that need. Yeah. And so when I was young, exploring Middle Earth for the first time, I was used to this idea that I have stories that are mine and my people's stories, and other people have their stories that present their cultural values. Yeah. Okay. And their identity. So it didn't really bother me at first that in a this mythic epic narrative set explicitly in he says the northwest of the old world east of the sea like sure most Mm -hmm. of the characters especially the heroes would be locals and they would look like locals right and also in addition to whatever homegrown villains there may be there would also be adversaries Mm -hmm. coming from distant lands who may look different in their body or their culture right because it's someone else's story it's their story it's not my story that's how i looked at it mm-hmm. hmm. okay and then years later i found out that while i had been relating to the legendarium as someone else's story in a sense i had actually been in the story all along even though i didn't know it hmm. to quote tolkien The dwarves, of course, are quite obviously, wouldn't you say that in many ways they remind you of the Jews? Mm. Mm -hmm. I know that interview well. We've brought that in a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. So I discovered that somehow I was there. I was there all along. It's still someone else's story, though, but somehow I'm there. True. Mm -hmm. And it just opened up for me the power of representation, Hmm. both for good and for bad. So maybe I'll explain this at this point please yeah so i'm obviously jewish and specifically i'm ashkenazi oh okay which means that my ancestors between ancient israel and today spent a significant amount of time in central and or eastern europe right yeah there's two important things that i just want to mention about ashkenazi identity one is that Most of the time in the United States and in other parts of the Western world and probably other places around the world, when people think of Jews and Jewishness, they're usually thinking of Ashkenazim specifically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bagels, 
Hasidim, Fiddler on the Roof, Yiddish language, literature, and jokes, Jewish delis. Those are all Ashkenazi cultural phenomena. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And this is actually a problem that we call Ashkenormativity, because there's lots of other Jewish cultures that developed in Spain and in Yemen and in Ethiopia and India and Central Asia and all around the Mediterranean and the Middle East that people either ignore or don't know about because, for whatever reason, they've been focused on one subset of greater Jewry. Right. The other thing about Ashkenazim, which is, I guess, especially relevant to this topic, is that many Ashkenazim look, quote-unquote, white. Okay. Because of that European heritage? Yeah. Okay. And over the last few years, that especially in the United States of America, there's been this, this resurgence of awareness around racial issues and inequalities. In the Jewish media and social media, there's been a lot of discussion of what this means, what it means to be provisionally white or functionally Mm. white under certain circumstances or to be white passing. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Someone I know who's both Jewish and gay actually said that it's sort of like being in the closet. Hmm. Okay. The idea that you can pass as white, nobody nobody knows, nobody sees anything different. They look at you, they see a white person. Right. Unless yeah. you reveal your identity or they right. pick up on a hint. Right. Um, and then mm-hmm. when that happens, there's the, the idea of passing always includes this sort of uncertainty because what are they going to think? Are they going to think something different? Are they going to, are they going to have a prejudiced or bigoted attitude. Mm-hmm. It's uh, this anxiety that's built into what looks at the outset like it would be an advantage. Mm-hmm. Right. Like being able to, to benefit from some of the unfair advantages that are part of the way that our society still treats people who look differently. But at the same time, it's a denial of one's own identity at the same time. Mm, right. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the question is, once your identity is revealed, will that change people's attitude? Right. The reason I put that all into a big parentheses right now was because I was going to use an Ashkenazi term, which is Yiddish, but it's originally Hebrew, nachas. Okay. Nachas means familial pride. It's the feeling that a parent Mm. has when their children succeed at something. Mm. Mm -hmm. So when I discovered the power of representation, when I found out that in a sense, I was in the story all along, Mm. that's both really good and really bad because I can feel nachas. I can feel identification with and pride in Gimli Mm -hmm. with his very down-to-earth nobility, or the heroism of Mm. Azaral, or the Mm -hmm. diasporan resilience of the exiles from Khazad-dum. Oh, yeah. Great turn of phrase. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. But that's that's, that's something that that can make me feel good to be associated with it. Right, right. But then it's something very different to read about dwarves in The Hobbit being Mm. 
quote, calculating folk with a great idea mm. of the value of money. Some are tricky and yeah. treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorne and company if you don't expect too much. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And then in the earlier material, in the Quenta, in the Lost Tales, it's even worse. Yeah, much worse. Like the dwarves are literally defined as monsters, Uvanimor, yeah. and described as this mysterious evil race of unknown origin who troubled the people of Earth and were similar to Morgoth's followers, even though they didn't directly serve him. <laughs> like, yeah. Skilled yeah. but greedy, short bearded adversaries for the gnomes to make war upon. Like, that doesn't feel good. Right. Yeah. And not only does it not feel good, like, it feels frighteningly familiar. Mm, yeah. And so once I was aware of that, it totally changed my experience of reading. Tolkien's works because I couldn't just say yeah this is someone else's story and it's a fantasy story and okay England blah 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 like the author himself <laughs> invoked mm -hmm. me right yeah and so like being explicitly identified by the author with a class of characters in his world it can be gratifying but it can also be very disturbing um, especially when yeah much of Jewish history really is the effect of other people treating you like a character in their story instead of respecting mm. you as a fellow human being living your own story and your own life. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that was phenomenal, Stephen. I, uh, eye opening really. And I know that there's going to be more that you have to say, and I have a feeling you probably have more here as I move on to a different question. You know, we often hear this defense, and this is certainly relevant to the issue you just finished on regarding, you know, Tolkien talking about the dwarves being inspired by the Jews. We often hear that defense that Tolkien was a man of his time. And in some ways, we used that defense in yeah. our first episode on the topic. Obviously, as a just as a fact, everybody is a person of their time. <laughs> That's just the way things work. But that doesn't yeah. mean we can't take a fresh look at Tolkien's work and talk about how it resonates with people in our time. And of course, we know that Tolkien said some appropriately harsh words about the Nazis in his letters, as we would hope, and also acknowledging injustices in South Africa. But some have suggested that these are low bars to clear and that his writing still reveals some prejudices that were common to people in the early 20th century. What's your take on this? So I actually think he's a pretty good model. I get the impression that his heart was in the right place. And I find it really impressive that through the example of his treatment of the dwarves and his legendarium, like he showed that people can change, people can learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the sensitivities that many of us have today that make us recoil from some of his usage of words and that sensitivity developed partially due to the times that he was living in. Mm, right. And True. like there's the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? But the great thing mm -hmm. about people is that human beings aren't dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Very well said. I, I like love it. this. Thank yeah. you. So like human beings learn and grow. And so it, it, it really seems like 
At some point, he realized that the folkloric sources that he was drawing inspiration from were contaminating his world with anti-Semitic caricatures. Mm. Mm. And so over a long time, he worked at it to to purge the dwarves of anti-Jewish stereotypes and replace those with possibly some actual cultural reflections inspired by the Jewish experience. Not every Jewish person who reads through the Legendarium is satisfied with how the Khazad ended up. But I don't think anyone could deny the incredible amount of progress that Tolkien's image of what dwarves are like went through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just recently saw in, I don't remember which, which volume it is of History of Middle-earth. It has to be one of the first five, because I don't actually have the ones after that. But at a certain point, <laughs> Christopher Tolkien quotes these early sources that sound like they're reflecting anti-Semitic European folkloric images of what a dwarf would be. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you know what? This is what it means in the appendices to Lord of the Rings when it says that the tales of men have claimed that dwarves worked on the side of evil, but it's not true. Uh That's right. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's amazing. He's reading his father's work as the author, not just trying to cleanse his world of negative cultural baggage, but to actually say that his own early work was wrong. Yeah, right. That makes me very hopeful for the human capacity to learn and grow and become (laughs) more sensitive to others. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that is a a great catch, a great insight. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Tolkien's comments in his letters about Nazis. Right. Yeah, yeah. I just love and admire his willingness to skewer the absurdity of Nazism to its face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and this, yeah, this isn't no even doubt. about about my people like the nazis had other victims who they also tried to eradicate True. yeah and i don't know who else would have had the scholarship the chutzpah and the way with words to respond to a mm. demand for aryan credentials by pointing out that the romani people who the nazis hated mm. so much and tried to destroy um, right. We're actually more legitimately, quote-unquote, Aryan in the linguistic sense than the German Nazis could ever be. Like, that, that's, right. that's yeah. impressive. <laughs> that really is. You're right. That's like, that's like how a philologist would, would respond. You know, it's such a, it's such a schooling from right. the philologist. It really is. And it's, it's a wonderful schooling at that. Yeah. Moving on, is there something that you wish, and I suspect the answer is yes, but <laughs> I want to maybe get some specifics. Is there anything that you wish Tolkien had done differently in his work, particularly in regards to his treatment of race? And and how would that have maybe impacted the story had he done that? Okay, so this this isn't about dwarves anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel like I've talked enough about that and what he did do okay. to uh, to improve that aspect of his work. But I do wish that he would have done something differently in terms of how he described enemy monstrous creatures like orcs and trolls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my other favorite authors is David Brin, who's a scientist and a science fiction author. And one of his novels is called Kiln People, K-I-L-N. Like, uh, like, like firing something up in a kiln. 
Yeah. Got it. Okay. And so Kiln People is a, it's a sci-fi noir detective story about murder and mass produced golem technology. Okay. And so in that story, golems can be made any color you can imagine, except for what he calls the 10,000 shades of authentic human brown. Hmm. Hmm. So there's always a clear distinction between the human in all our variety mm-hmm. and the non-human. Right. So I think that some of the alienation that contemporary readers can feel for some of the professor's descriptions could have been avoided if he described orcs and trolls using more explicitly monstrous adjectives instead of ones that mm. have also been used to describe human beings in real life. Mm-hmm. I'm especially for people who have had those descriptions applied to them. Yeah. Just avoiding that totally and making clear that monsters are monsters. Hmm. That could have helped. I don't think it would have impacted the story at all, but what's important is that it would have not impacted the reader. Wow. Yeah. I I, I think that's really well said. I guess, you know, with that in mind, you know, having talked about what Tolkien did and did not do himself, what would you like to see future adaptations of Tolkien do differently? Now, of course, this includes partly the Amazon series, because that's the the next one on everybody's mind. But you don't have to limit it to that. You know, what would you like to see future movies do differently or, or, or any future adaptation? Well, I think it would be good if future adaptations tended towards a greater range of representation rather than strictly adhering to the text descriptions of what the quote-unquote featured ethnic groups of Middle-earth look like. Um, like, I really appreciated in Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies. There were, there were certain things that I didn't appreciate in them, um, but I did appreciate how he was able to include a more diverse picture of humanity in a way that also didn't feel like it contradicted the image presented by the book. Because like, mm-hmm. at least from the way I look at it, mm-hmm. um, if you needed to pick one location we see in the books to be a diverse, multicultural community, Lake Town is a wonderful choice. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like right there, out on the edge of the map. It's a trading center yeah. between the dwarves and Dale and Amon Thranduil and all the varied humans and Rovanian and, and Rune out there in the southeast falling off the map however far it goes so it makes sense that (laughs) like anyone from anywhere could be there and so i'm glad that um that he took that opportunity to show us that view of escaroth yeah so similarly i sort of got lost from tv in this new century i remember in the 90s like turning the dial or maybe pushing buttons on a cable box. Like, (laughs) I really don't understand any of these streaming services. Like, I haven't been able to get into it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But from what I've heard and read, the if the Amazon series is focusing on the Numenorians, sorry, that's, remember, I I first read this when I was very young, and some of the uh, mispronunciations stuck. (laughs) That's all right. So so I still call them Numenorians. I still sometimes call Rivendell Imlandris with a weird N in the middle. Yeah, exactly. I still sometimes call it Taniquetl. Right. <laughs> so how long have you been doing this, man? Yeah, yeah far too long. 
<laughs> so, so if the Amazon series is focusing on the Numenorians in the Second Age, then that's also like a perfect opportunity to show a view of Middle Earth that's more inclusive than a shallow glance might assume. Because, I mean, they right. explored all the seas. They interacted with yeah. whatever human culture or Avarin culture or Dwarven culture might be anywhere in Arda, they could be there. And so it would be super easy to justify, quote unquote, featuring characters who look like anyone from anywhere. Right. Yeah. 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 Not everyone has to look like the three houses of the Dine, even if you throw mm-hmm. in the Drugo, who I'm like a really big fan of. Yeah. But like, it could be so much more than that. So I think that would be nice. Yeah, that would. That's one thing I'm really excited about with the series. I mean, I, I have my fears. I have my doubts. Um, but I also have my hopes. And one of my hopes is that we'll really see a very just a very diverse Numenor, not just in the way the people look, but just in the way the world looks. I mean, you know, the the cultural markers that they use to, you know, kind of code the culture. I would love to see some ancient Egyptian looking stuff. I would love to see uh, just like all kinds of like bright colors. And, and I don't know, I could, I could see Numenor being really exciting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's something I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Hopefully I figure out how to watch it. <laughs> well, Stephen, now that we've talked about your experience of the work itself, what's been your experience of the Tolkien fandom? We've had folks talk about this, about being welcomed or feeling marginalized. And, you know, you kind of touched on something earlier that might be relevant in the fact that you don't appear to be of, uh, of a marginalized group or of a different group, a different culture. What's your take on that? Have you experienced anything in the fandom that uh, our listeners should be aware of? So I've, I've mostly had good experiences like, I really don't remember any problems coming up in my early days on Usenet and Elendor, although that was 20, 25 years ago now. So true, uh, true. I could have yeah, forgotten. Yeah. And since then, there's this big gap in my uh, involvement in anything that could be Tolkien fandom. But I did have one incident um, a little under a year ago posted in a Facebook group, the lyrics to a parody of a contemporary Israeli dance song that I had reworked into a song about Eowyn and the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. (laughs) Okay. It was in Hebrew, so I didn't expect much response, but I was hoping that some other Hebrew-speaking Tolkien fan would appreciate it. Sure, yeah. But unfortunately, instead, I got an anti-Semitic comment from some jerk with Morgul in his name. Oh. Of course, yeah. Like, (laughs) really? Right, of course. (laughs) Fortunately, one of the mods of the group was a uh, certain Lord of the Mark who took care of it. Uh, I, thought this, uh, I thought this story sounded familiar. Yeah, I was wondering which group this was, and now I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's the only incident that I've had. But I don't know. Being Jewish on the internet is a constant low-level anxiety kind of situation. Mm-hmm. You just never know. When you're out there in not the quote-unquote real world, but the virtual world where people feel much freer to uh, spout yeah. whatever kind of uh, hate they're feeling at the moment, um, you just never know if some innocent comment is going to get a uh, hostile response. So, I mean, that's that's the only incident that I've experienced recently, but it's just part of life. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you get used to it. <laughs> Wow. wow. How do I... uh, and it's like, I, and, 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 and I'm simultaneously like, yeah, I guess it is. And yeah, and yet, what a horrible world we live in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
I guess you get used to it, but boy, you shouldn't have to, you know, right. yeah, <laughs> I mean, I know. that's it's... right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess really along those lines, what can we do or other people who have platforms like this in the Tolkien community to make sure that voices like yours are heard and welcomed? I think the only thing I can think of is just encouraging people and reminding them to always be sensitive and recognize that other people out there have struggles that you may not know mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And I think that the example of Professor Tolkien's changing development of what dwarves are like is a really mm. great um, example to point to, to show yeah. that it's important not only to try to improve the primary world, but also to be willing to, to look inside yourself and your own imagined internal worlds and make sure that those two live up to the highest ideals. Mm, yeah, I like that. I think that's a wonderful place to end. And I think it is. And yeah. a, just a powerful lesson for everyone listening. And I hope they hear it and I hope they appreciate it. I know I do. I do too. Stephen, thank you very, very much for joining us today. We are really grateful for your perspective and, and just for your time for joining us. So thank you again. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you, and I really appreciate this opportunity. We appreciate you joining us, as Alan said. It's just been uh, just a great time, and we've enjoyed yeah, it. Thank you. It's been eye-opening. Thank you very much. And now we'd like to introduce our last guest this evening. Tell us who you are and tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Alex. I'm a Tolkien fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the Prancing Pony podcast, of course, and uh, thank you. And I'm glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. We're super thrilled to have you here, and thank you so much for saying you're a fan of the Prancing Pony podcast. That always that does mean a lot. That makes us feel good. <laughs> well, never hurts. It's true. <laughs> thank you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm. I'm very mixed in terms of race and, and background. I am Hispanic. I'm also. A few other things, mm -hmm. one of which definitely gets me. Um, I've faced a lot of a lot of racism in my life, um, mm. a, a little more than it seems reasonable to me. Uh, <laughs> but I'm assuming that's that's most people's position on that. Well, since racism is inherently not reasonable, exactly. yeah, any amount that you encounter is therefore by default unreasonable. That's it a fair point. Seems yeah. disproportionate, but um, yeah. here we are. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about when you first discovered Tolkien's work? Maybe how old were you? And did you read the books first? Did you see the movies first? That sort of thing. I was actually um, a bit older. I was in my, uh, well, this will give it away, but uh, I was in my mid-20s. Mm -hmm. And my I had married a Tolkien fanatic. He oh, cool. We had a Tolkien cool. shelf when we met. Oh, wow. So right <laughs> it was built in. Um, and I just never <laughs> would read the books, partly because I'm, a bit obsessed with trees and I've always written oh, little okay. stories about trees. Uh, and mm. everyone always said, well, that's, that's just like Lord of the Rings. So, ah, um, okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I sort of, I sort of, uh, didn't, didn't read them until the first movie came out. And mm. right after the first movie came out, I just plowed right into Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Cool. And, um, that is, that is how I got into Lord of the Rings. So that was 2001. That was December of 2001. Yes, it was. So it started with the movies. You kind of came to the books with sort of that picture of Middle Earth in your head, I imagine, somewhat. Or do you feel like Tolkien's words kind of 
And this is always a question I ask people who watch the movies first, because I read the books first. Did you do you feel like Peter Jackson's vision really had an impact on how you see Middle Earth in general? Uh, or do you feel like once you read the books, you're like, oh, wait, no, this is it. This is a, a totally different Middle Earth than what I saw on screen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I especially if I see them now, I don't that isn't how I envision pretty much anything. And I I just oh, okay. watch them a bit for reference. There there are a few mm-hmm. things that have come up in this discussion about um race with the uh the man at Bree with the Oh yeah. I forget how his eyes are described exactly, but um I do picture the actor in the movie for that, oddly enough. Who Oh. I didn't play a very large part either. You're talking no, about he's, the Southerner uh um, Yeah, he's who is yeah yeah and he's just very but he he's not he's racially basically the same as everybody else so yeah mm-hmm. he's the one he's the squint-eyed southerner right? yes yes yeah. right right but otherwise i i really don't picture a lot of it no okay i was familiar i was probably one of the few people i was actually familiar with tolkien due to references in old english books and beowulf ah okay okay Chickering's dual edition Beowulf uh, has some exercises written by Tolkien. Mm. Oh wow! So you've gone into the deep end with that stuff. Well, that's seriously. He yeah, was that, the guy from. He was the guy. I'd, yeah, from the Beowulf studies. So okay, right. I think I'm okay. the only person who did that that way around. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, I, I guess you know, just to kind of jump into our discussion here, Alex. I mean, you, you know, you talk about how you. Um, you know, you started with the movies, then moved on to the books. Do you feel like that had an impact or I guess what kind of impact do you think that may have had on how you view the topic of race in Middle Earth, which, of course, is what we're here to talk about today? Right. You know, there was quite a bit of discussion at the time because of 9-11 mm-hmm. and then the film coming out. And then um, for basically the next year, I think there was a lot of discussion about how and this was by the, the filmmaker, the film team as well. Yeah. Trying to explain why they, you know, we would say now um, coded certain groups as yeah, being more yeah. Middle Eastern. I look at the films now and I don't, I see them as sort of a hodgepodge of every other thing that you can put on an extra, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but it is, it is definitely all the other, all the other things are basically yeah. thrown in at that. But there was a lot of discussion about this and, you know, the, there's the war on terror and all of that was ramping up. There was um, a lot of discussion of the Middle East uh, yeah. of Islam. And I remember there being a, a forward in one of the books that came out with the two towers, I believe it was, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure by Viggo Mortensen about, you know, resisting racism and Islamophobia and, you know, hoping for peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this was very, this was very much something that was discussed at the time. So I think I was just very aware of it being there. Mm-hmm. One of the first things I, I did notice, and this was actually my first experience with any of this, and I didn't even mean anything by it, but after seeing the film, because there's a lot of close-ups in Fellowship of the Ring. Yes. A lot of, yeah. A lot of close-ups. And I just made the comment that, that there were so many sets of blue eyes in that movie. And I happened to say this to some people who had been fans of the books for like years and years. These were people who were pointing out little inaccuracies in the movie, like with, Mm -hmm. you know, their fists up in the air. (laughs) Um, And they all turned around at me like I was trying to pull one on them. They're 
<laughs> they're like, all right, now don't you start doing that. Don't start throwing that stuff in here where it does, you know, and I, I was like, hey, 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 I just was making a comment. There were just right. really yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of blue eyes. That's all I mean. I mean, that seems like a perfect example of, you know, if I can just kind of jump in, it seems like a perfect example of kind of what we're looking for here is like how, you know, your, your experience being very different from a mm. lot of a lot of fans and, and, and the idea that some fans kind of come to it like, Oh, well, this is the way it is, you know, because of their personal experience, but you come to right. it from a different, from a different place, from a different background and you have a different experience of the work and it, um, yeah. it, it's very interesting. And it, it's fascinating to me to hear you say that about, about the movies, especially because of cop, of course with the movies, you can't hide it, <laughs> you know, like the, the movies, it's, it's, it's all on the screen. You can see the, yeah, we talk about chosen. those blink and you miss it moments in the texts, Yeah, but there are no such things in the films. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, um, I mean, that was, that was an uncomfortable couple of months, even if you're mm-hmm. not, um, like I am not Muslim, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was an uncomfortable few months really that made you very aware racially, but yeah. I, you know, yeah. I didn't, there was also, I had no, none of the book purism. I right. hadn't read right. it yet. So it wasn't with there the first. Yeah. Right. Right. So everything was completely new to me. And the only thing I really remember with early readings of the books, it wasn't race. It was having that much information come at you all at once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a fire hose for sure. It's like <laughs> yeah. rereading the Council of Elrond chapter like five times just to you have to, yeah, just to <laughs> keep track of who's talking and telling you what. Right? right. Who was that? The firstborn increase and the what? <laughs> De- I, I, no, no, wait, wait, and then you know Gandalf's entire uh, rundown to Frodo. I mean, this is a lot mm-hmm. of information. You're not going to get all yes, of that in one reading. So no, I wasn't thinking anything to do with with race reading the reading mm-hmm. books mm-hmm. i was kind of jumping up and down over the old english references of course i'm sure that <laughs> that's was awesome thrilling. yeah that is awesome so we often hear the defense that tolkien was a man of his time when it comes to this issue of race obviously everyone is a person of their time that's how time works but that doesn't mean we can't take a fresh look at tolkien's work and talk about how it resonates with the people in our time now We know that Tolkien said some appropriately harsh words about the Nazis in his letters and also acknowledged the injustices in South Africa. But some have suggested that, look, these are relatively low bars to clear, and his writing still reveals some prejudices that were common to people in the early 20th century. What's your take on this? Based on his writing, including his letters or anything else you're familiar with, how do you think Tolkien measures up to others of his time in regards to racial tolerance? Yeah, I think that Tolkien was just a man of his time and mm-hmm. also a man slightly out of his time. He always had one foot in a different world. And it's a world that yeah. I've mm-hmm. spent a lot of time reading about in terms of northern mythologies and poetry. Right. So a lot of the things he says that, you know, doesn't really bowl me over as blatantly, horribly racist. And compared to writers of his time... There's so much, everybody brings up H.P. Lovecraft, and I don't think H.P. Oh, Lovecraft no. is it. Of course, H.P. Lovecraft is very, very, very racist. Yeah. Um, you go into the letters of H.P. Lovecraft. Okay, well, have you ever gone into the letters of Margaret Mitchell or mm. her no, yeah. only real hit novel? It's yeah. explicitly racist. There's no way True. to get around that. Even writers like Agatha Christie, 
you hmm. you have these little asides where I remember in Death on the Nile, she's referring constantly to the character of Jackie. They the narrator is constantly referring to her as having hot Latin blood. She's French. Oh my god! Um, so <laughs> if you want to talk about how people saw race at a certain time, well, yeah. Tolkien's talking about dwarves and hobbits and elves, right, right, and orcs, and. Yeah. Yeah, his prejudices of that time are going to come through. I think um, mm-hmm. also to a different discussion I've seen, there were some things that were social coding that I think get lost. Yeah. Mm. Good point. They're not necessarily racial. Mm-hmm. It's fair. Yeah, I suppose you could probably look at things like the relationship of Frodo and Sam, right? I mean, there's so much social coding in that relationship, right? True. And we can talk about it as, oh, he's, it's kind of like an officer and a Batman. And we can kind of get past it through that. But also there's just there's just a very master-servant relationship there, isn't mm-hmm. there? Very much so, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier the the prejudices that, that do exist. Do you have any advice or any counsel for our listeners on how to come to terms with those existing prejudices uh, and, and to be able to continue to appreciate the work for what it is? Mm-hmm. I would say to definitely just uh, study them, read more. Tolkien provides so much opportunity to, to dig in to ancient sources. And I know a lot of fans mm. do this. Mm. Yeah. But read them. Personally, I'm disabled. I've seen a lot of discussion lately over how it's horrible that Frodo has to sail into the West at the end, that Mm. it's giving a horrible message to disabled people. I don't see it that way, but also there (laughs) are parallels in mythology. In the Kalevala, there's there's just, there are a ton of parallels. And I would say to just, to read more, read more from that time period, and also just examine it. Um, Critique it if you need to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I would I would say, take the story overall, and I'm here talking about Lord of the Rings specifically, but take it overall for what it is and for the themes. Tolkien said myriad times that it's about death and mortality and fading. And mm-hmm. there's barely a paragraph in the book that doesn't at least work this theme in. True. Yeah. So don't throw that baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. just because there's some stuff that is a little stick with the theme. Tolkien wrote an entire very persuasive essay and series of lectures on the theme of True. sticking to the theme and not tearing down the entirety of everything solely to pick apart little, little aspects here and there and mm-hmm. make the work into something that it's not. Mm-hmm. through deconstruction and i that's the advice that i honestly would give is to just appreciate the art for what it is i like that using tolkien's own beowulf yeah. analogy the monsters and the critics yeah. exactly. right the monsters and the critics yeah. analogy about the, the tower. tower allegory yeah to say don't Absolutely. take this tower down to try to inspect the stones that make it up too closely you, you can see the sea if you climb to the top of this tower right yeah yeah from the top of this tower i could look out upon the sea and yeah mm-hmm for a lot of us, this this is a work that um very 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 deeply it resonates in that exact way. Mm-hmm. It is about death and grief and loss, and it is a comfort that people turn to in those times. Yeah, it reminds me of um I oh gosh was that I, I think this was in on fairy stories was it Alan where Tolkien mm-hmm. talks about universal truths like look, you know looking for universal truth. But yeah, I, that's that's kind of what I'm struck by when you're talking, Alex is um. You know, there there are some things there that, that absolutely do resonate no matter 
who you are, no matter where you come from. And I like to think that's what Tolkien was trying to do, um, that he was trying to come out with a message that would resonate with lots of different people more so than anything that would ever seek to divide people. I, I, I don't think that was his intention. But, but again, I mean, I think in the interest of kind of understanding different people's perspectives on this, the way different people receive the work, I mean, you know, I guess some people are going to, are going to see those things. And, and I think it's, it's worth talking about. Maybe on the universal theme, yeah. Um, I mean, he did. There, there's a reason that Lord of the Rings is is popular the world over, and not just Lord of the Rings, but the rest of his works. It's not because he invented different races. Mm. Although I, I, I don't. I'm not as familiar with the world of gaming, and I understand that there are some serious concerns there. And I certainly wouldn't want to talk over people who have those concerns. But um, yeah. You know, from from some of his notes, a quote, if we like to forget the encircling foe and its ultimate victory in the temporal order, he did not forget it. He was on a besieged island and knew it, but he loved the island all the more. <laughs> I love that. That's a line he took out. Uh, he, in his finished uh, final Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics, that's not there, but it's paraphrased in the Grey Havens. Yeah. In the mouth yeah. of Sam. I mean, Frodo to Sam. Yeah. Wow. And that's a, that's a universal theme. And... Uh, so I would I would say we've had a, a tremendous year of grief and loss and suffering, mm. and this is a balm, not to downplay anybody who has concerns or has brought up concerns. Oh, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm spending a lot of my time discussing race and racial inequality in other circles. Yeah, but it can uh, I think it can be a little poorly aimed when the criticisms are coming from people who are not marginalized people or from marginalized mm. groups. That's well, fair. and I appreciate you saying that because one of the things that I, I think I speak for both myself and Alan is, you know, we don't want to be seen. We don't want to talk over anybody else. Right. No, um, no. not just we don't want to be seen as talking over anybody else. We don't want to talk over anybody else. We want right. people to to have their concerns heard. And if people are seeing content in Tolkien that that makes them uncomfortable, that makes them feel marginalized, uh, that resonates with hateful language that they've heard or things they've experienced in their life. Um, we want them to be able to talk about that, but, but I, you know, it is, I think it's also important to talk about the, the good that's there. Right. Yes. And, and the, the universal truths that are there, which I think is, is what Tolkien was trying to do, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear you, hear you bring that out. I think that segues into a, a question that I've got here about, you know, I, I think Alan and I often talk about Tolkien's message being one of togetherness. I mean, I think even in our previous episode on race, we we talked, you know, maybe a little bit too lightly about the idea that you've got different races and cultures. You've got elves right. and men and dwarves, hobbits, ants, whatever. They're all coming together to fight this common enemy. And, and we felt, you know, well, of course, look, look at all these different races coming together. This is diversity. And and maybe we were a little bit glib with that, but certainly not intentionally, but not intentional. No, I think it's just the reality is um we see the world through our own lens and, yeah. and there are other interpretations out there. And, you know, there, there are some who have argued that despite this message of togetherness, which, which is there on the surface, that maybe there is still some othering going on. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, that other, other types of othering that might be showing up in the story that maybe we haven't talked about before. Yes. I, th I think that the, the theme of everybody comes together is, well, the way you phrased it sounds a little uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's that just, possible. That sounds sounds like see, he put in diversity because they're different. Yeah, 
Well, I think we did say that in the previous episode, and I think, frankly, it was just a huge blind spot for us. And I'm yeah. I'm here to admit that, frankly. Yeah. It was a blind spot for us. I, I think we were too glib about it. And uh, frankly, I'm surprised we didn't get more criticism for it, honestly. Um, please, th- tell tell us, you know, tell us what we... There's a lot of room, though, for, for being a little bit more... Um more humorous about it though in a way too uh, i mean yes there's a lot of othering going on it's a travel story how is tolkien supposed to describe everybody they come into contact with was he supposed to give the hobbits uh smartphones so that they could wikipedia who what people in gondor look like or the ents um and i think that there's there's a lot i take this i take this actually way too personally in real life the othering as we were saying, I have a hard time sometimes even going to the grocery store. If I have to wear a scarf, I get, um, I've actually had to have my spouse defend me oh because my. of the people coming in to, oh, why are you, you know, I'm obviously not in hijab. I'm not Muslim, but that's right. not how right. people read that. So othering right. is right. something that I've experienced since it's honestly one of my earliest memories in life is my grandfather and his accented English having to yell to people. She's American. Cause again, mm. I don't know what it is about my face, but it screams to people with my mouth closed that she's other. And then they comment on it. Mm. So this is something I have a oh. lifelong experience with mm-hmm. and I've gotten sensitive to it. But at the same time, sure. I think, you know, like my father wasn't sensitive to it. He just, took this in stride and actually that's a little how pippin takes it i think pippin's mm, mm. a good example he gets to gondor every single yeah. person there what are you right They're basically oh, yeah. the where the middle earth version right. of where are you from right. <laughs> and, <he>, and pippin's <laughs> like well i'm a hobbit i'm a <laughs> hobbit i'm from the shire and here i'm gonna tell you about it and he knows who he is He's not yeah. trying to be a man or a gondor. <laughs> I mean, he's wearing the uniform, but he's he still right, knows, sure. he knows who he is. Yeah. And that is a, a very good way to deal with those sort of things. And an ex- example mm. of when you have a community, a strong community and a strong fellowship. I think that actually is 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 really one of the big lessons is that having having the strong fellowship and friends. Mm. I find that there's a lot of othering in, in discussing race generally. Hmm. There's a lot of pressure that that puts on people who are from marginalized groups across the board. And mm-hmm. sadly, I tick too many boxes here. Um, <laughs> racially, uh, gender, I'm not going to lie, gender and uh, Tolkien is still a very uncomfortable sort of sure. subject. But mm-hmm. again, if it were more comfortable, I would not have a Tolkien shelf. Mm-hmm. That's fair. I would throw that out. If if I found Tolkien's work offensive, I would throw this out. That is not how I feel. Mm-hmm. I find great, great solace and comfort in Tolkien's work and his philosophy. So is there something that you wish Tolkien had done differently in his work, particularly in regards to his treatment of race? I know it's kind of a what if question, but it's one that I think will be really interesting to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and, and if so, what, how do you think it would have impacted the story? Um, I... I think I, the woeses are unfortunate. Mm, make make no mention fair. of them. Flee them. <laughs> Take Gilder's advice. Just uh, cut them out. I really don't even think that would truly affect the story that much. No. Um, yeah. I think that is a very, very obvious. That is the, that is the ultimate man of his time 
instance of shoehorning in every single stereotype of the noble savage trope. Yeah. 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 The dialogue doesn't even seem original. No. And it doesn't stack up to his other characters that he created, such as the Ents. Yeah. So I would say, yeah. Um, there's stuff that I wish he had. I mean, everybody wishes and people would will wish that certain language was not in things that are written right now um, in about 20 years. Good point. That's a very good point. Go, yeah. oh, no. So, um, yeah, I, I think that you could nitpick that to death. Again, it's it's a tower. <laughs> yeah. But you're saying it could do without that one particular stone of the Wozes. <laughs> yeah, I am taking that one stone. Not wrong. I, to, yeah. to the extent that it doesn't do that much for the story. Right. And, uh, you're right. That's a good point. And I remember uh, even, you know, like reading like Dimitri Femi talking about, um, you know, that idea of the noble savage and. Yeah, it's yeah. I haven't I haven't reread that part in a few years now, and I, I'm really I'm I'm both interested and kind of terrified. And dreading it, there. yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm dreading exactly. the, the the Tonto esque language that he yeah. speaks. I did it, it last did night, it. and it was it was almost like you were just reading. It was it. It's like you step outside of Lord of the Rings. Mm. No, a little other, bit. Other than Mary sitting there making his observations it's like who wrote this dialogue my goodness yeah oh this is every single that is gonna one be of painful these. when so, we get there sean i, I, I think it is skip it yeah. well and well i don't know if we can do that take we, that we, we out of the tower we got it we got to do the prancing pony <laughs> podcast treatment so we've yeah gotta... we'll probably not do a lot of the actual talking <laughs> oh my gosh i didn't even think about that. i don't think How i want to actually dialogue? do any of, of gone much at least of gone very gone very guns actual dialogue, dialogue. Yeah. Don't. Yeah, that's, just, a, that's a good point, Alex. But, you know, you mentioned how that's sort of, you know, kind of the ultimate man of his time thing, right? I mean, that was just such a trope, wasn't it? Yeah. In a lot of the literature he would have grown up reading. That, yeah, that that was something that, and it, the, the thing about the noble savage trope is people, when they included it, they were trying to be very charitable. Sure. They were actually, that was sort of an older version of being what they call today in air quotes woke. As horrifying mm. as that sounds to modern ears, that's actually know, was that, that the me, perception. Cringe, but you're right. Yeah. It really was. If you hear people talk, you know, like movie, I hate to pick on certain movies, but there are certain movies featuring native Americans, indigenous people. Yeah. Where this is so also the case, and they're now seen as fairly cringeworthy. But at their time, they were trying to make a commentary on, and, and it just it doesn't work in either case. No, it's never comfortable. No, um, yeah. As for the rest of it, I no nobody wants to hear certain certain remarks. And I mean, let's let's be very honest. This is a world he's created a world where all the bad guys that are humans look like me and my family. Mm. part of me and my family you know then there's like this one little sliver of my family who are all pretty good that's weird but i don't really see it as if 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 that makes any sense that's very easy to separate from me mm. i wouldn't expect much otherwise mm. in terms of and from a large expansive fantasy fiction that needs right. to create a world that's roughly based on europe where the shire is located where it's at <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just sort of, it's there. Um, I have, I've read a lot of the criticisms of how this has impacted fantasy as a genre, but also um, gaming and these other areas. And that's not mm. something I've delved into outside. Mm -hmm. I, I stick pretty Fair. much with Tolkien. So I, 
those criticisms I'm always interested in hearing more of and mm-hmm. yeah, certainly not trying to talk over any of those criticisms. I'm just not familiar with them. Nor are we. And certainly no, we can't yeah, speak to those. Me either. Yeah. I, I've seen a little bit of it just because I'm starting to get a little bit back into D&D and um, not actually playing, but just starting to read the books again. And I, I'm seeing conversations like that too. I understand there's a, a lot that's being done to kind of change D&D, but I, I'm not at all prepared to to talk about it at all. Just, no, you know, no. I'm not close enough to it. Mm. That's actually a really good segue to my next question. It's it's almost like we planned this. <laughs> almost. With all that said about, you know, the what ifs of what Tolkien, you know, did or didn't do, what would you like to see future adaptations of Tolkien do differently? Mm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm thinking partly of the Amazon series here, but not necessarily just, just in the case Amazon they'll series. listen to your advice. Yeah. This will sound horrible coming from somebody who discovered the books through the movies. Well, sort of through my spouse and and Beowulf. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I don't want there to be f- further adaptations. Um, <laughs> I find that they go terribly awry when it comes to try. I mean, Lord of the Rings has a lot of dialogue. Tolkien wrote a yeah. lot of dialogue. You could just yeah. lift it and stick it right in the movie, right in the script. The Silmarillion does not. We already saw what happened with The Hobbit, mm. which also does not. So, right. I think no matter what they do, they're on thin ice already. And Good point. also, what are they basing this on? What, we don't know mm. anything about the Amazon series, but it it's an uncomfortable thing no matter what. Because if you put a bunch of people in there to try and force a, a diversity, I don't know. That leaves you with some really uncomfortable, uncomfortable things going on. It's fair. Hmm. So you'd rather see no future adaptation. Yeah, just leave it, like cut everything and leave it. <laughs> leave I just it rather see, I've seen this happen with too many other works where um, yeah. they do a very poor job of writing because they don't adapt it properly, but then they try to yeah. put a diverse cast and then everyone gets blamed and frankly, this is a sort of activism that makes people who are not, who, who are white, let's be honest, yeah, in, let's in, be clear. in right. America and in Britain, the, this makes people like that feel like they're doing something. And when everybody mm. gets mad, they don't get mad typically at those people who make the production. Oh, that sort of activism lands on marginalized groups every time. Huh. Interesting. Every single time. And when I've, I've seen this happen for so long <laughs> and that never goes well for the marginalized groups in question. So. Okay. Uh, th- when they made that Troy fall of a city. Hmm. I don't think I saw that one. Oh, yeah, don't it. just don't. It's, t- <laughs> it's, it's possibly the, the last Troy movie I saw was Brad Pitt as Achilles. Oh, wow. That's what I'm saying. It has that as competition and it's still worse. People, when it it was released, it was released in, in, in Britain first, in the UK first. And people were, I was following the tweets and people were saying, I can't wait till it's over. So they'll talk about Brexit again. That's how bad. (laughs) It's just boring. It's so boring. But what they did was they made a diverse cast be in there. So Achilles is Mm. a bald black actor who's really good. He's the only interesting thing in the whole mini series. And it's a <laughs> mini series based on oh, Troy man. and partially the Iliad it's, it's of course it's the whole mishmash. And I think right. as a few of the gods were also black. And so there's just this reaction on the internet, whereas you either like it and you're a good person 
or you right. hate it and you're racist. And then everybody mm-hmm. else who's just like, it was boring. <laughs> it was just <laughs> bad. How about hating it for the actual content? Right. Rather than right. The, right. <laughs> yeah, it just sucked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a fair concern about the Amazon series. You're right. Because if you come out, if, if it is, let's say, mediocre. And we criticize it as being mediocre, but it has a diverse cast. Then, yeah. Are we viewed? Then we're right. viewed as racist because we're criticizing a show that has a diverse cast, even exactly. if we're just criticizing the content. Right. Right. Wow. And if the worst content is in the hands of an actor who's playing a completely fictional character who's played mm-hmm. by a person who's not white, that's like if they gave all the, well, they did give all the worst stuff to Tariel, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <true. laughs> I mean Yes, that is quite true. They yeah. they did give the worst stuff to Tariel in, in all fairness to her. Yeah. And lastly, we just want to ask about um well about your experience with the fandom. We've talked about your experience of the work, but in dealing with this issue of race in Tolkien, what's been your experience with the fandom itself, the Tolkien community? Well, I have always actually found the Tolkien community to be very welcoming. Mm-hmm. And I sort of live on on nerd jokes. And nerd <laughs> facts. And uh, it's the internet. Yeah. I'm from the generation where we first were able to have these discussions and we were a lot more anonymous. It was a great place mm. to be anonymous. True. Mm. And be judged for, you know, our content, what we were putting out there and not not all the stuff we'd be judged for in real life. Mm. So, and I, I do want to mention this, that one of the things is being a non-Christian that's one thing that sort of made, it doesn't make me feel marginalized. It's just, you know, I don't have anything to say in certain discussions. Well, sure. That's fair. And sure. Yeah. That's fine. There's, there's just, and you know, D and D jokes. I don't play D and D either. So <laughs> there's, there's some stuff that I just don't, you know, I don't have anything to contribute on, but sure. otherwise yeah. I find the fandom to be very welcoming. And I, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm very, very sorry. It makes me feel terrible that other people have not felt well. Yeah. But there is another aspect of othering that I think we need to discuss and we need to address mm-hmm. privilege in the Tolkien fandom and this arena, particularly, especially in this last year Okay, where so many people are grieving already and in very bad positions. We are in a pandemic. We are losing mm-hmm. family members, Yeah, but yeah, there yeah. is the othering that ensues when people who are privileged and in the majority, in other words, in most of these discussions, they're white. Um, within the fandom who insist on bringing up race and and, and insist that we discuss race and racism. It unfairly throws a light on every marginalized person that's there. Your jaw Hmm. clenches. You automatically just go, oh my gosh, all of the trauma I have experienced, every racial slur I have been called and all of that is just... There is something so visceral in that, Mm -hmm. that we frequently remain silent as some of this lived experience that we have is traumatic to recount. And it really Mm. only serves the interests of more privileged people in the group who kind of want, it's commonly called trauma porn. I feel uncomfortable Mm. with that term in a way, but uh, it's a very othering thing. And as a lot of us have sought out these places to, you know, be fairly anonymous, mm-hmm. not have these qualifiers. And that leads to another related subject is that we've got an epidemic in a way of people who are coming from a place of privilege and usually white. And I am in no way trying to talk over anybody who has felt 
harmed by the text or harmed by the fandom or harmed mm -hmm. in any who's from a marginalized group and has had those experiences. But there is a certain aspect here that we really do need to discuss of privileged people who are white, who are insisting that we talk about race and lecturing people in the fandom mm -hmm. on what constitutes racism, anti-racism, and racism in Tolkien, or just flat out insisting that he was racist. Okay. Mm -hmm. We know what's racist. And everybody has a different view. All these groups are not, we're not monoliths, but we absolutely, this is the definition of white supremacy in the form of systemic racism is to mm. have people insist that we discuss racist elements in Tolkien's work when a variety of people of color is, as the phrase goes, I, I don't use that as much, but people from marginalized mm -hmm. groups have for the last several years have been asking people to stop. Mm -hmm. We frequently get shouted down and this is usually being done by white people. So I don't see what purpose it serves mm. to keep insisting when it makes people uncomfortable. Yes. There's a very self-serving quality to some of this discourse. Mm -hmm. And I've likened it in, in pol more polite terms to, which I also feel very, very heartfelt, to tearing down the tower and Tolkien's tower allegory, because I believe his works are, they're art with a theme. This mm -hmm. is a, this is somewhere that you can, you can walk through this tower. These are rooms in which you, I spent all of last year reading, I sit beside the fire and think to my mother-in-law, who was the dearest person on the planet to me, mm. every day after she declined following several strokes. I read that to her every single day. Wow. That is part of my Tolkien experience. That is part of my interaction with the text. I don't need yeah. to deconstruct it. Um, mm -hmm. That is a much deeper place Yeah. to experience yeah. the text. And of course I, we weren't able to see her after March and I, wow. uh, I read that to her for the last time on FaceTime mm. in September mm. and she passed away that night. And, uh, oh. Oh my gosh. so when I talk oh. about the tower and how I walk around in those rooms, you know, yeah. my, my father, he, he was also introduced to Lord of the Rings through the movies and absolutely yeah. loved the films, but he didn't read the books. And he mm -hmm. was struck very suddenly with a, with a brainstem tumor. It was brain cancer. Oh. And, we never talked about it. We we never talked about his uh, his impending death, which is what it was. I, right. Except for the one time, he finally looked up at me towards the end and asked me what happens to Frodo and what happens to Aragorn. Oh. And this was literally the only conversation I had with my father about his death was telling him that oh. Frodo gets to sail away to be healed. And um, this was the last conversation I had. The only conversation I had with my father about him dying is linked yeah. inexplicably to Tolkien. And he passed away in a, because he, he, this was September, edging up on September of 2003. He died during that month. And um, mm. the Return of the King came out in December of that year. And so he knew he wasn't yeah. going to get to see it. And this was his only way he really acknowledged that. And so I had to tell him the end. I had to tell him what happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you better believe that when the movie came out, I was bawling my eyes out oh, when Pip, sure. you know, when Gandalf had to describe, oh yeah, um, death, and that beautiful scene there where those words get put into Gandalf's mouth, yeah. and uh, that's all I wanted was 
for that curtain to peel back and see my dad again. So yeah. this is my tower and this is my theme. And it very much is, it's very much a part of how I experience this. And I've absolutely, am not criticizing anybody who felt um, injured by anything in the fandom or the text sure. or um, any other areas like fan fiction and those sides of the fandom. Right. I would never want to, and I, I cried equally at at uh, some statements in a um, Oxenmoot piece uh, where somebody else mm. felt horrible by something that was said, well, by Tolkien. I would never yeah. want to, but there is an element here where we have, I, I've even heard the phrase problematic POC, problematic people of color mentioned several times. It's unacceptable. Seriously? Yes, it mm. is unacceptable to have, and this, the, the people who've said this have qualified themselves as being white online. There is no reason in the fandom to have people who are privileged and white going around and labeling people who disagree with their view of racism and other isms in Tolkien as being problematic. No. Yeah. And I yeah. think that everyone can agree that that is what makes the fandom potentially unwelcoming. Well, it certainly would. Wow. I have plenty to say on Tolkien, obviously, that has nothing to do with race. Yeah. And I would very much like to be able to discuss those <laughs> those things. <laughs> These are all pleasant things that take take me away from the troubles of life and from, frankly, the traumas I've experienced right. that have stemmed for, directly from very racist, very racist incidents against me mm -hmm. um, in my life. And... So no, I, I don't want to be lectured on by people of privilege, people who are white, people who are some in academia, telling me what I need to believe and giving me a reading list. Mm. There's, mm. A, there's an insinuation there that we are all, if we don't agree, we're just unenlightened and uncouth and uneducated. And I think we can see where that's going in terms of being yeah. racist. Yeah. It's a very uh, condescending form of racism that i i don't tolerate good i to speak out on this a few times and i was treated very rudely by the people who were engaging in this behavior mm. and insisting on inclusion in the fandom i right. i was uh right to, told to that i needed to of your thoughts right? go away problematic person of color we don't like mm. your thinking. Now that's not welcoming anybody into anything. Mm. That is that is exclusionary. There's a problem with this. Uh, and I, I will quote here Christopher Tolkien um, from an interview. I, I typed this out earlier um, mm -hmm. on the machine. If the ring were not destroyed, it wouldn't matter in the long run whether Sauron got it himself. As he, J.R. Tolkien, his dad, said once, Gandalf, if he had had the ring, would have been far worse than Sauron because mm -hmm. he would have been righteous and self-righteous and coerced the world to its own good. And that was one of my father's greatest fears was the coercion for good ends. Wow. Yeah. Well, there's a relevant quote. I, yeah. I kept going back to that. I even tried to gently post it in a few places before I gave up altogether and stopped trying to discuss anything with people who were insisting on discussing race and Tolkien. I've been in battle with some of these people. This was rife um, in the aughts. This was everywhere. You couldn't turn around mm -hmm. without running into a racist blog that hated Muslims and wanted to nuke Mecca and was using a picture of Aragorn. 
and Men of the West. It was co-opted by everyone. So I understand Mm -hmm. the criticisms that white supremacists have tried to adopt Tolkien as one of their own. I understand it very well. And I was actually doxxed by some of these people back in the elder days of the internet. Oh gosh. Mm-hmm. Which is a very unpleasant thing to happen. Uh, it's uh, it's yeah. uh, having a map Terrifying. to your old house on the internet is a little worse than getting mm-hmm. a random comment on Twitter. I, I can attest to both of these. Quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm aware that they're there. They were all over the place. Um, and they're still all over the place. And yes, we have to fight them and kick them out. But um, right. But we need to discuss the other lack of inclusion that is happening by people who are insisting <laughs> that um, hey, your your favorite authors are racist, and if you don't agree, we're going to call you names. Mm, yeah, I guess the whole point here is the discussion is a discussion, and it's not a discussion if yeah. it's only one side. So right. uh, we really yeah. really appreciate your input on this and. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we know that yeah. we we don't expect this episode to go without controversy. So uh, don't worry that you said some some strong things. We're grateful for it. And we hope we that are. people will take what you said to heart. I, I hope I wasn't too strong there because I, I truly, this is actually coming from a place of love and I want to hug every single person. Out. Well, not it's a, there's coronavirus. So no, well, but yeah. I want to extend those <laughs> in theory, in theory, careful. extend Maybe. those feelings of warmth to everybody who has felt marginalized or harmed or unwelcomed in any way, shape or yes. form. And there, there is a lot of racism. Yes. There's, I was just reading an article about somebody who was criticized for cosplaying or drawing oh, drawing yeah. fan art if you, if you're not white and you want to draw yourself or someone who looks like you as if yes if someone objects to having fan art that's more diverse or people cosplaying when they're not white yeah that's racist i think we can all yeah, agree that yeah. nobody who's sure yeah objecting to that is a person of reputable you know yeah yeah but i think that there's we need to extend the love on all fronts here you know except to nazis you know, I not to the right. Nazis, but you know, we need to extend fair. extend no. the love across the the community of of people who are coming from racially diverse. The terminology has gotten so strange on all of this. Um, but people yeah. of color, uh, BIPOC, whatever your preferred term is, we need to extend the love across the board to to everybody. And admit that there are some problems in the fandom, but I think one of the biggest problems is honestly that people don't have a place to really discuss. And we need to get back to doing that. Yeah, that is great. And thank you, Alex, for joining us. And we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure. And once again, we want to thank all of our guests for their courage and their honesty in coming forward to talk to us about this. I know that this is not an easy topic to discuss openly, but we really applaud all of you who did so. I personally found it to be eye-opening, and I hope it'll be the same for our listeners. I'm sure it will be because it was for me as well. And I am really grateful to each one of our guests for what they were able to share with us tonight. Yeah. Now, folks, please be sure to join us again next week when we will begin our five-episode journey through Fangorn Forest in Treebeard. Now, we do want to take a moment to thank our patrons at the Keardance Contributions here. That's Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, Mario in Utah, Seth in Texas, Ella in California, Joseph in Texas, Kathy from North Carolina, Lori from Washington, Josh in Oklahoma, Carlos in California, Brian from the UK, Cameron in Nevada, and Ned from Connecticut. Thank you all so much for your support. Indeed. And we also want to thank the team that helps make the show better. 
Our research assistants, along with our barlaman, Becca Davis, producer, Jordan Rennells, social media manager, Casey Hilsey, event and Patreon community coordinator, Katie McKenna, and website guru, Phil Dean. This show would not be what it is without our supporters and our teammates, so thank you all. Now, be sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony podcast. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts and comments to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Barlaman is a lot more reliable than he used to be, but we do get a lot of mail, so we'll get to you as soon as we can. And your question or comment may be featured on a future episode. Now, as always, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. Farewell.